Jesus made the claim that he was and is the Son of God, and then he gave abundant evidence of that claim. And I want to just get a sampling of this claim and not go through each one of these in detail because that's not the focal point of our study. I just want you to see he gave abundant evidence. He did things like turn water to wine in John chapter 2. He healed the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. He healed many who were sick in Luke chapter 4. He caused a miraculous catch of fish in Luke chapter 5. He raised the dead on more than one occasion in Luke 7, Luke 8, and John 11. He calmed the sea when there was a storm in Matthew chapter 8. He fed 5,000 and 4,000 in Matthew 14 and Mark 8. He healed those that were blind in Mark 8 and he walked on water, Matthew chapter 14, and that's just the beginning of the list. Not even half the number of miracles that Jesus performed. Now these were done and many others were done to give evidence of his claim. John said in John 20, that many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, but these are written. In other words, these are recorded that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus made the claim, and then he gave an abundance of evidence, the text says. But I want to suggest to you that many Jews rejected him. And as a whole, there were Jews who accepted him for sure, but as a whole, the nation of the Jews rejected him. That is, he was despised, Isaiah 53, and rejected of men. So they didn't accept him. John 1 says he came into his own, that is his own people, his own nation, and they did not receive him. So in spite of all this evidence, they didn't accept him. They didn't believe he was who he claimed to be. Now I want us to focus at the cross. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And at the cross there were some who said they might believe and they would if. Something took place. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 27. This is going to be the basis for our study. You might want to put a marker there. Underline some phrases for future study. Matthew chapter 27. And I want to back up to verse 39. There were those who were passing by who were wagging their heads. And they were saying, he just said, uh, uh, you who destroyed the temple, build it in three days, save yourself. You claimed you could rebuild the temple. Let's see you save yourself, in other words. And come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests, these are leaders among the Jews, mocking with the scribes and elders said, here we are at verse 42, here's what they said. They said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. You stop and think about what that means. They wouldn't accept all the other miracles. We gave a whole list of those, just the beginning of the list. They wouldn't accept those miracles. But they said, if he does this, we'll believe. He's hanging on the cross now. He said he could save himself. Let's just see that. If he would just to come down from the cross and come off of that cross right now, we would bow down and believe him. The truth is, they wouldn't have accepted that either. And you say, how do you know? Because he didn't come down from the cross then. He did come off of the cross, but he was taken off of the cross, dead, put in the tomb, and then raised from the dead. But he didn't come down like they're suggesting. But what if he did? They wouldn't have accepted it. You say, how do you know? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. Do you remember the, the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, some of these same kind of people who said to Jesus, teacher, we would see a sign from you. 
Teacher, we want to see evidence from you. Now keep in mind, they're asking for evidence. Back up to verse 11. Back up to verse 11. They had already seen evidence because there was the healing of a man on the Sabbath day. They saw that evidence. Look at verse 22. They brought many who were demon-possessed and blind and mute, and he healed them. So it wasn't one miracle, but multiple miracles they had already seen. And then they say, we want to see some evidence. They've already seen evidence. And then Jesus said, there would no sign be given but that of the prophet Jonas. And the point of that is that I'll go to the tomb for three days and be raised from the dead. And there's your ultimate sign. And he did that. And they still didn't believe. So that tells me they wouldn't have accepted this had he come down from the cross. But if you do now, we will believe. Let me notice another example of that same kind of thing as to how I know that wouldn't happen. Do you remember the rich man in Lazarus? Where the rich man said, send Lazarus back to my father's house because I have five brothers and let him warn them lest they come into this place of torment. And Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the revealed scriptures. And if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. And the rich man argued the, that that would do better. That would, that, would, uh, that would accomplish something if you had one to go back who was raised from the dead. But Abraham argued, no, no, no. That if they will not be persuaded with Moses and the prophets, they would not be persuaded though one rise from the dead. They had enough evidence already. That forces us to raise this question. Let's read again before we raise the question. Let's look at the verse again. They said, if you will come down, notice, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe. See, we're just lacking this one thing. If we could just see this, then we'll believe. That forces me to raise this question. What would it take? Turning water to wine wasn't enough. Healing the blind wasn't enough. Raising the dead wasn't enough. Calming the sea wasn't enough. And on and on and on we could go. Feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000, that's not enough. But I'm looking for one more thing, and I think that'll be enough. What would it take? What would it take for them to believe? What would it take when they already have more than enough evidence to convince them, and yet they're not convinced, what would it take? With that in mind, let's raise this question for our study this morning. And our question is, what will it take? And let's apply that question to us. I'm not so much concerned about these Jews. They're not sitting here this morning. We don't have the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees sitting here this morning asking them, what's it going to take for you to believe in Christ? They're gone. They're dead. We're still living so. What's it going to take for us to accept some principles? And let's start make, making our list. What will it take for you to believe in the creation account? What will it take for you to believe in the creation account? Well, let's turn and see what the creation account says. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, without reading the entire chapter, I want us to notice that at verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said at verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. And then with verse 5 said, the evening and the morning were the first day. Well, then verse 6 through 8 talks about what was created, that he divided the waters from the firmament, and the evening and the morning, verse 8, were the second day. Well, we go further. At verse 9 through verse 13, we have the dividing of the waters from the land, the grass, the trees, and the plants. Verse 13, and the evening and the morning were the third day. 
Beginning at verse 14 through verse 19, we have the stars and the sun and the moon. And verse 19 says, evening and the morning were the fourth day. Beginning at verse 20 through verse 23, we have the birds and the sea creatures made. And the evening and the morning, verse 23, were the fifth day. Beginning at verse 24 through verse 31, we have cattle and beast and man. And the evening and the morning, verse 31 says, was the sixth day. And so we have six days of creation. So reading Genesis 1, the text says that it was created in six days. Someone said, oh, I don't think that's literal six days. I think that's, that's probably eons of time. So let's go to Exodus chapter 31, beginning at verse 15. Let's go to Exodus chapter 31. The wording of Genesis 1 is of six days of creation. Exodus chapter 31, talking about the Sabbath regulation, let's begin at verse 15, compares the creation week with the work week for the Jew. Let's see what it says. Beginning at verse 15. Work shall be done for six days. And on the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. This is what you're to do. Work six days. That's six literal days. Not eons of time, but six literal days. And you rest on the seventh, which is the Sabbath. Let's drop down now to verse uh, 17. It shall be a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth... And on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Do you see the comparison? You work for six days, rest on the seventh, just like God created in six days and rested on the seventh. There was a comparison between creation week and the work week for the Jew. This was six literal days. That also was six literal days. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19. We'll say more about this in our study tonight. In Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 4, Jesus said, He that made them at the beginning made them male and female. We're going to drive that point tonight on talking about home and marriage. But nonetheless, God made male and female at the beginning. It's not that there was something that started and it evolved and developed over eons of time, and now we have male, and over eons of time we now have female. But He made them at the beginning. Now watch this carefully. If the six days are eons of time, and man was created in the sixth day, that's closer to now, we're told by the theistic evolutionists, we live in the seventh day, the eons of time, then man was created closer to our time than at the beginning. So in other words, if the first day is millions of years, the second day is in millions of years, and the third day is millions, and the fourth day is millions, and the fifth day is millions, and the sixth day is millions, and we're in the millions of the seventh day. Man was created on the seventh day, which is, though it be millions of years ago, is still closer to now than at the beginning. But that's not what Jesus said. He that made them at the beginning made them male and female. I don't want to tell you that the world is saying, oh no, that couldn't be. And even some of our own brethren will argue that I think possibly it may be six days, but it could be eons of time. There's my question for you. If you don't accept Genesis 1, Exodus 31, and Matthew 19, what will it take to accept the creation account? What would it take? Someone would say, well, if it said, no, you won't accept it then. I believe if it was worded, no, you wouldn't accept it then. If you won't accept Genesis 1, Exodus 31, Matthew 19, if you don't accept that, what will it take? Here's another question. What will it take to believe in verbal inspiration? What will it take? 
Let's talk about verbal inspiration. What is verbal inspiration? 1 Corinthians 2 and in verse 13. Verbal inspiration in contrast to thought inspiration. Some have the idea that the Bible is inspired only in the sense God gave the thought to the writer and the writer makes up the words and, and so sometimes they overstate it. Sometimes they exaggerate. And so it's not exact. And so it's subject to error. It could be erroneous. So we can take a passage we don't fully agree with and we say, you know what? I think Paul kind of overstated. I think the writer of Genesis kind of skewed the numbers a little bit. And uh, there's some things in Psalms I don't know that's ac exactly accurate because the writers overstated the case. They were subject to error. Verbal inspiration means God chose the very words. Let's see that. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 13. Beginning back at verse 9, the thought of inspiration and revelation flows through the text. Things that were in the mind of God, no one knows unless God chooses to reveal them in that he did. Now verse 13, these things we also speak. Got your pencil ready? If you don't have this marked, perhaps you already have it marked. Notice the word words. Not in thoughts, no. Not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Paul said, these things we've wrote. What are you talking about you wrote? We wrote words that were chosen, not by man, but were chosen by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit chose the very words. But that's not all. You are very familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16. Quite often... Uh, preachers or teachers will say 2 Timothy 3 talks about the Bible is inspired, but 1 Corinthians 2 is the one that talks about verbal inspiration. I beg to differ. 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3 also affirms verbal inspiration. Let's see. The text says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspired simply means God breathed. That's A.T. Robertson. He's a lexicographer. It says it means God breathed. That's what inspired means. That does not refer to the effect that the word has. Some said, oh yes, the Bible is inspired. And what they think is the Bible is inspiring. You read it and it inspires you to do better. That's not the point. It's not the effect that it has, nor does it mean God breathed into. In other words, man wrote whatever he wanted to write, and then God gives his stamp of approval. He breathed into that. That's not what the text is saying. The fact that God breathed means he breathed out. So here is the idea that God breathed out, thus this is a divine product. All scripture is given by the breathing out of God. Now the word scripture is from the word graphe, graphic, meaning to write. Photograph means you write with light. So graphe means to write. So it's the writing, it's that which is written. Words are the very things that are written. Since words are what's written, the words, the very words are God-breathed. So when the text says scripture, the writings are breathed out by God, is saying the very words were breathed out by God. Not just that all of it was, but the words were breathed out by God. That's verbal inspiration. Let's notice an example in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 1 and in verse 9, God said to Jeremiah, I have put my words, not my thoughts, 
my words in your mouth. And yet there are those who say, they come along and say, you know what, I really think the Bible is not verbally inspired. You say, well, yeah, the modern, there's some of our brethren who've bought into this. And who think the Bible is not verbally inspired. How could it be verbally inspired? It's subject to error. That's why I can take a passage and, and say that's exaggerated or that's overblown or that Paul missed the point. I can discount part of it because it's subject to error. That's going on in some universities. You've heard me mention at David Lipscomb College in Nashville, there's not a single, I'm told by the, and this comes from the editor, the gospel advocate, who you ought to know because it's in his circle. There's not a single professor, Bible professor at David Lipscomb that believes in the inerrancy of the scriptures. You think about that. They don't believe that all of the scripture is verbally inspired. Here's my question. If you don't accept this evidence, what would it take? What would it take? You say, well, if it, were, if it was worded this way, no, you wouldn't accept that. Not if you wouldn't accept this. What would it take? If it just said, or if I had this evidence, I would believe the Bible to be verbally inspired. What would it take? Here's another question. What will it take to believe that it makes a difference what one believes in religion? Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 13. Do you remember the story of the young prophet and the old prophet? There was a young prophet there who came and prophesied against the altar that Jeroboam had established. Jeroboam, after he had experienced seeing three wonders and miracles, invited the young prophet to come home with him. Verse 9 said, the prophet said, I can't do that because of three rules. I'm not to drink water, eat bread, nor return by the same way I came. There was an old prophet there that followed him as he left and went to him, verse 18. He said, I too am a prophet of God. And an angel of the Lord and God spoke to me and said that... By the word of the Lord, it came to me, you're to come home with me and eat bread and drink water. Then notice at verse 18, are you reading at verse 18? Look at the last few words. But he lied to him. Verse 19 says, he went back with him and he ate bread and drank water. Now, beginning at verse 20, we're not going to read the story, but just scan starting at verse 20 and scan the next few verses and see if you don't find where there was a lion that came out and killed him according to the word of the Lord because he was disobedient. Look at verse 26. He was disobedient to the word of the Lord. So here's the young prophet who believed a lie and he was killed. Did it make a difference what he believed? It certainly did. Let's go to a New Testament passage and see the same point as it applies to us. The apostle Paul says, and to, uh, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason God would send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they might all be condemned who believe not the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Here's what I want you to see. It's possible for someone to be deceived and believe a lie. Go back now to verse 10. For this reason God would send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they might all be condemned. It's possible to believe a lie and be condemned. Does it make a difference what you believe? Oh, there's abundant evidence of that. But I want to tell you, there's some Christians, maybe some this morning that have this concept. 
There are some Christians that talk like those who believe and practice error are good Christian people and they will be saved. So where do you get that idea? Well, they may have a friend, they may have a relative, or they may have a neighbor that's a part of, maybe it's the Baptist church or it may be the Methodist church. Or it may be the Catholic Church, it may be the Assembly of God, and when they die, some Christian will put on Facebook, oh, they're in a better place. Really? Rest in peace. Oh, they are, they may tell me about a neighbor of theirs, oh, they're good Christian people. Oh, where do they go to church? Oh, they go down here to such and such a denomination. Really? They're good Christian people. You see, that tells me that some among us sometimes have the idea it really doesn't make any difference what you believe. It doesn't make any difference what church you're a part of, what you believe, or what you practice in religion, that you're going to be saved anyway. Now, here's my question. If you don't accept 1 Kings 13, 2 Thessalonians 2, what would it take? You say, oh, I, I would think I would accept it if the Bible... Oh, no, you wouldn't either. No, you wouldn't. Not if you don't accept this. If you won't accept that, what will it take? To keep us from continuing to deceive the world by telling them that our religious friends who are in error, that they're okay because we've announced to the world we think they're going to heaven. What would it take? Here's another question. What will it take to accept that not all moral and religious people will be saved? Very similar to our previous question, but we're going in a different direction. What would it take to accept that not all moral and religious people will be saved? I think sometimes people think if you're good moral people, that makes you a saved individual. Well, let's see if that worked with Cornelius. Let's go to Acts chapter 10 and notice a man named Cornelius. Was Cornelius a good man? Well, let's see. Acts chapter 10 in verse 22 says that he was a man who uh, feared, he was a devout man, one who feared God. You don't see that expression much with reference to a non-Christian. It's used here that way. He gave alms generously and prayed to God always. He was a religious man and he was a moral man. Look at verse 22. He fears God and has good reputation among all the nations of the Jews. Ask any of Cornelius' neighbors, kind of man you want, they say he's a good man. He's a religious man. He gives to other people. Was he a saved man? Let's look at verse 14 of chapter 11. Before he came in contact with Peter... Peter said, I was told, that, that Cornelius was told that Peter was going to come to him and tell him words whereby he and all his house will be saved. He's not saved yet. Not till Peter gets there and preaches the gospel to him. He's in a lost condition, though he was a good moral man. There are some people who believe in Christ, they're religious, they're going to be lost. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Luke 6 says, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? John 8 talks about, verse 31, some who believed on Christ. Verse 44 says they were children of the devil. They were children of the devil. Let's go to Ephesians 4. The Bible says there is but one church. The Bible says there is one body. Well, if we don't know what the body is, let's let that same writer, same book define in chapter 1, 22 and 23, the body is the church. That means there's one church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? 
I want to suggest to you there's some Christians that talk as if denominational people in denominationalism will be saved. Again, they talk about their neighbor. Oh, he's a good Christian man. He's a good, good Christian man. Really? He's in a denomination. He's not in that one body. Well, I'm trying to get him to come to church with us, but he's a good Christian man. Do you mean if he dies, he's going to go to heaven and if he can be saved and, and be in denominationalism and practice things contrary and he can enter the kingdom of God another way than the way that's described in the script? Is that what we're saying? Here's my question. My question is, is, is if you don't accept this kind of evidence, then what will it take for us to talk better and not use the language of Ashdod? What would it take? You say, well, I think if the scriptures, no, you wouldn't accept that. Not if you wouldn't accept there is one body, that those, in Christ, those who believe in Christ could still be lost, that good moral people are still needing to be saved. If you don't accept that evidence, what will it take? Let's raise another question. What will it take to understand that Bible study is important? What would it take? You see, the Bible was written in order that it might be read. Most anybody that ever writes anything, if they could conclude that no one is ever going to read it, why bother writing? These things we've written in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. That's Ephesians 3. See, the Bible was written in order that it might be read. It's supposed to be studied. We are to grow in knowledge. You say, well, I, have some, I, I know some things about the Bible. I have, I have kind of a general Bible knowledge. Okay. Let's fast forward and assume that you are a Bible scholar. Let's just assume that. And we're coming to you all the time with, with all of the questions about the ins and outs and the depths of the Scriptures because you are a Bible scholar. You are still commanded to grow in knowledge. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Add to your faith. That's a command. Add to your faith. You have faith? Add to it. Build on that. What do you to add to your faith? Virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. We're to grow in knowledge. We're commanded to do that. Notice in Ephesians, or 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 18. But grow, here again is a command, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. That's in the context of saying people misuse and pervert the scriptures. Make sure you know when they have done that. And the only way to know that for sure is for you to grow in the knowledge. Text in its context. All right, here's another principle. Some study should be done as an individual on an individual basis every day. You say, when did anybody ever do that? The Bereans were commended for that. Here's where God commended someone because they took their scriptures and they searched it every day. They just searched through it and studied and they read it every day. That tells me something of the importance of Bible study. Bible study you do on your own, in your home, on a daily basis. There's other kinds of Bible study. Some studies offered in our Bible classes where we're digging into the scriptures deeper than we sometimes do in the pulpit. So we're studying some things in the Old Testament on Wednesday night, studying about the book of Esther. What a fascinating story. We're studying Colossians. We spent the whole time this morning on half of the chapter of chapter 1 about the deity of Christ and the message and the mission of the Apostle Paul as a minister. And there was a great deal to see there. And we only went across the surface of that. 
And I want to suggest that those who, who are coming are growing and they're learning. Whatever class they're in, they're reading and they're studying and they're learning. They're growing in knowledge. They're doing exactly what these passages say. But many choose not to come. And many choose not to study their Bibles every day. They open their Bibles maybe on Sunday when we're together, and then they close it, and they might not open it again to the next Sunday. And they've missed out on all that. Here's a question I've got for you. If you don't understand the importance of Bible study, what would it take? What would it take to be a part of our Bible class program? What would it take for you to study your Bible every day? You say, well, if the Bible said, hang on, don't commit yourself. If the Bible said thus and so, I think I would see the importance. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Not, not if this doesn't get you to Bible study every day. What would it take? Number six. Here's another question. What will it take to see the importance of assembling with the saints? Is it important? Well, I'll tell you what's accomplished when we come together. When we assemble and come together in one place, that's the definition of an assembly in 1 Corinthians 14. Here's what happens. God's praised. So the name of God is glorified. Just a sampling of that. This is not the only concept, but Ephesians 5 talks about Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. So we're singing praises to God. That's just one of the elements. So we're honoring and praising God. We're honoring and praising God with the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. So God is praised, number one. Number two, Christians are edified. Not only are we singing to God, but we're singing to one another. And all things are done to edification. That all may be edified, 1 Corinthians 14 and in verse 26. Now, Listen to this carefully. When this passage is mentioned, sometimes the very mention of Hebrews 10, 25 is a turnoff. And when the preacher mentions, let's go to Hebrews 10, 25, it's a turnoff. I know he's, he's going to talk about not forsaking the assembling ourselves together. I'm more interested in what was causing the forsaking of the assembly in the context. Let's go to the text and look. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25. The text says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, here's the phrase I want you to focus on, as the manner of some is. As the manner of some is. Don't forsake as the manner of some may be. As the manner of some is. In other words, some in the context of Hebrews chapter 10, we're forsaking the assembly. Something was causing that. Now notice this carefully. Either we're not told why, and we're left to wonder. They were forsaking the assembly, and the text doesn't give us even a clue. Maybe they were forsaking because they just wanted to go fishing. Maybe they were forsaking because they had their businesses to run. Or maybe they were forsaking for, you could just guess. Either it doesn't give us a clue, or, or, or persecution, which is in the historical and textual context, is what was causing them to miss. And the context, historically, of the book, the textual context, chapters 10, chapter 12, all point to persecution. Here's what Albert Martin said about that. He said, some may have been deterred by the fear of persecution as those who were thus assembled would be more exposed to danger than others. Would you have a problem assembling if the outside forces of our government were forcing us and saying, 
you assemble again, you may be beaten. You may be arrested. But you say, I better stay home. I better stay home. I, I think I better stay away. Because they may, or your house may be ransacked like chapter 10 talks about. Or chapter 12. And to go back now to our text. If that understanding be correct, that persecution was what was causing them to miss, the text says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I want to ask you a question. If you can't see that, what would it take? In other words, you say, I, I, I saw that. I see what, what happens when we come together. We're praising God on Sunday morning. We do that on Sunday night. We do that Wednesday night. Christians are edified. I got that. That happens all, the, all those times. And I do know that persecution was not a, a legitimate reason for missing. I got all of that, but I don't see the importance of assembly. Then what would it take? What would it take? You say, well, I think if the Bible said, no, no, that wouldn't mean anything to you. That wouldn't mean anything to you. Number seven, what will it take to understand the danger of the world? What would it take? You see, the Bible says that when we have close friends of the world, and I think when we use a phrase like that, someone says, oh, my friends are not of the world. They're not wild people. They don't get drunk every week, and they don't, uh, they're, they're not high on drugs all the time, so my friends are not of the world. We're not about people who are non-Christian, who don't share the same standard that you do. When we have close friends of the world, there's some warnings that are given of that in Proverbs. Let's see what it says. Let's go to the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> Let's get a sampling of this in Proverbs 1, then we'll go to two or three of the other texts. What I want you to see is the proverb writer warned the people you run with, the friends you have, good or bad, the kind of crowd that you're in has an influence on you. That's all it says. Look at Proverbs chapter 1 beginning at verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come, let us lie and wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without a cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down into the pit. We shall find all manner of precious possession and fill our houses with spoil. Cast your lot among us. Let us have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. You say, well, my friends have never done that. That's not the point. The point is, these friends are inviting you to do what you know you shouldn't be doing. They'll influence you. That's the point. Let's go to chapter 12. Same book. You still in Proverbs? Let's go to chapter 12 and 26. The righteous should choose his friends carefully. Be very careful who you run with. Be careful who your associates are. Why, why, why do I need to do that? For the way of the wicked leads them astray. Your friends could influence you in the wrong direction. That's the point. Let's go again. Chapter 23. Chapter 23 of Proverbs. Well, let's skip on over to chapter 24. In the interest of time, I want to go to the 24th division in verse 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Okay? Do not associate with those given to change. The English standard says those who do otherwise. In other words, you fear the king, don't run with those who don't have fear of God and fear the king. Don't, do, don't run with those who do otherwise. They'll have an influence on you. They'll persuade you. Evil communication corrupts good morals. We need to understand the danger of the world, not only when we choose friends of the world, but when we marry non-Christians. Let's go to Deuteronomy 7. 
You say, before we get there, you say, I, I know we're not under the Old Testament. I know that too. That's a good point. But here is a principle that we want to see that doesn't change. And that is who you marry makes a difference. I know we're not under the law that forbids us to marry a pagan. I got that. I understand that. I got that. I can show that too. But I want you to notice that there is a principle in Deuteronomy 7 that who you marry makes a difference. How do I know? Look at verse, verse 3. God had told them to drive out the people of the land that they conquered. And though in verse 2 you don't even show them mercy, nor shall you make marriages with them. What's wrong with that? You shall not give your daughter to, to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. Don't encourage the marriage. Why is that? Verse 4, for they will turn your sons away from following me and serve other gods. See, the person you marry makes a difference. You see, God told Moses to tell the people and preach to the people in this second sermon what you need to tell them. They start marrying the pagans. Those pagans will influence them to be just like the pagans. Could it be maybe the, the Israelite could influence the pagans? Sure. But he didn't even give that as an exception. He just said, don't do that because they'll have, they'll have some influence on you. Nehemiah chapter 13 says, even Solomon was caused to sin by his wives. The, Solomon's wives caused even him to sin. What does it mean, even him? Solomon, with all of his wisdom, who knew the danger, was even misled by his wives. Who you marry makes a difference. There was a church in Oklahoma a number of years ago that kept records for 20 years of, the, of their members who married Christians and non-Christians and what happened to them. This is interesting. Of those that married Christians, only 8% of those people ended up going to the world. Of those who married non-Christians, 72% turned away from the Lord. Think about that. Would you get on a ride, would you go to the fair and get on a ride and, and if the sign said now 72% of the people get killed before they get off, but you're welcome to get on. Would you go? Would you get on an airplane when they, if they said, you know, this particular model plane has crashed 72% of the flights, but you're welcome to get on. Would you get on? Would you take a job? They said, now this is a dangerous job. 72% of the people we've employed to take this job have died. That's why we're hiring you. We need somebody to replace those being killed. 72% have been killed. Would you take the job? Now, if 72% turned, turned astray, that means there was a percentage that didn't go astray and may have converted their mates. But 72%. Here's my question. If that doesn't convince you of the danger of the world, what would it take? The Bible principle is you become like those you're around. It makes a difference who you marry. The statistics show it doesn't work when someone says, I think I'll do that anyway. Is number eight. What will it take for you to know that enabling a sinner keeps him in sin? What would it take? To know that enabling a sinner keeps him in sin. Let's see what Luke 15 says. Start of Luke 15. This is the story of the prodigal son. You remember in the story of the prodigal son that he went astray and he came back. 
And what is it that brought him back? And so we talk about a number of things. Well, he, he uh, realized, you know, how low he was. He, and uh, he realized that he uh, had reached this low and uh, his father was willing to welcome him back. His father was looking for him. We can list a number of things that may have produced his coming back. There's something I missed for a long, long time until someone pointed it out to me. Let's go to verse 16. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. Okay, I knew that. I knew all about that. But I'd skimmed over the next phrase. And no one gave him anything. Do you see that? You might underline that in your text. And no one gave him anything. What happened to him? Well, later in the text, he rose and went back to his father and said, I've sinned, and he came back and was welcomed by his father. Look at verse 16. Notice this, the last phrase, and no one gave him anything. In other words, no one enabled him. No one looked over the next door and said, you know that Jew over there, is try- I saw him trying to eat some of that slop he's giving the hogs, and I don't, and, uh, I don't think I'll, I think we'll invite him over here for, to our house. And let him eat with us. They would have just enabled him to stay in a foreign land away from his God and away from his father. No one gave him anything. Text says. What that means is they didn't help him stay in a foreign land. They didn't help him stay away from his God. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 5? This audience is familiar with those texts without even turning. Do you remember in withdrawing from the brother in 1 Corinthians 5, they were not to keep company. That's the term that you use. 2 Thessalonians 3 says the same thing. When the principle of 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3 is not followed, then what we do, we keep company with the wayward. The text says don't keep company with them. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 3.15. I want you to see this point in the text. This is not just um, a shot in the dark, but this is actually what the text says. 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse, verse 14, he said, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company. That, the word company means to mix together with, literally. Look the word up. If you have your Bible app with you, go ahead and tap on that if you've got one of those programs like I have, and you can tap and bring up all your... your uh, uh, lexicographers and look at all 10 of those and they will define that as mix up together with it means to socialize that's what the word company means all right notice verse 15 verse 14 do not company with him now the next phrase that he might be ashamed now when we don't practice that principle that means we do keep company we socialize with the wayward the text said don't we do just the opposite So if holding back that socializing is to make him ashamed, then socializing means he will not be ashamed. If not, why not? That was so simple, you probably missed it. So let's go over that again. That if holding back the socializing is supposed to make him ashamed so that he comes in repentance, then socializing means he will not be ashamed and will not come in repentance. That means we've enabled him. And thus we're keeping them in their sin. You see, when we treat the erring the same as if they were not erring, there's no reason for them to change. And those who are the closest to that sinner, that erring sinner, 
that erring child of God are the ones that have the greatest impact. But when I treat them just like I did when they were faithful, I treat them the same way now that they're unfaithful. I'm not giving them any reason to change. And we scratch our heads and wonder, I wish they'd change. I don't understand why they won't change. It may be that we're enabling them and we're helping them stay in their sin. That's what we're doing. Here's a question I have. If this is not enough evidence, what will it take? You say, well, I think if it was worth, no, that wouldn't make any difference. No, that wouldn't make any difference. If this don't make any difference, another way of wording it, a little stronger. If the Bible specifically said, have nothing to do with them, do not associate with them, don't have them for dinner, don't have them for birthday parties, don't have them for Christmas, don't have them for Thanksgiving, you wouldn't accept that either. What would it take? Here's number nine. What will it take to see the importance of the home and the family? What will it take? I'm going to briefly touch on this because we're talking about the home tonight. But husbands are to love their wives and not be bitter against them, Colossians 3. Titus 2, older women teach younger women to love their husbands and love their children. So, so the home is to be filled with love where you care about one another, genuine love. Not surface love, but genuine love, deep love. The, the home is to have a leader where the husband is the head of the house, not a boss that commands, but a, but a man who leads and leads gently and leads with love and concern. But he does take the responsibility. By the way, this idea of leading is not so much boss and commanding as it is he takes responsibility. There's a weight on his shoulders that he's responsible for this family. It's like being an elder. It's not so much authority and boss, it's a weight of responsibility. Because people are looking to you, what, what are we going to do? Same thing in the home, they're looking to the husband, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? There should be respect for one another. Wives are to teach, be taught to love their husbands. Wives see that you reverence your husband, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands are to love their wives even as themselves. And so here is this respect you have for one another. Wives are to be keepers at home, Titus 2 and in verse 5. And we're to train our children in the proper and the, the right way. And furthermore, there is to be calm and not chaos. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3 before we leave that point and go to our last point. 1 Peter chapter 3, what do we mean calm and, and not chaos? In describing the wife is what she's to be. Notice at verse 1, here's a woman who is a Christian but her husband isn't. And she's going to win him not with word, the word, that is not by preaching to him, not by harping on him, not by fussing at him. She's going to win him by her conduct, verse 2. She just calmly lives a Christian life. What else does she do? She has the spirit of verse 3. She doesn't, it's not giving emphasis to the outward adorning of hair and arranging of, of the hair, wearing of, of gold, etc. But she has that incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit. There's calm, not chaos. Verse 7, he gives honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. He dwells with her according to understanding. He's very understanding of her. He treats her calmly. He treats her kindly. He treats her with gentleness as the weaker vessel, something fragile, and treats her as an equal together of the grace of life because he's interested in his spiritual welfare and hers, and she's interested in his as well. There's calm 
and there's not chaos. If you can't see the importance of the home from those principles, what would it take? Do you have the home where there's barking and biting and, and growling at each, each other and there's fussing and they're screaming at one another? Oh, we don't see that here when we're together, but sometimes behind the closed doors of the home, you have that chaos going on where parents and children are fussing and arguing with each other. Mom and dad are arguing with one another. Do you see the importance of the home? If this doesn't convince you, what would it take? One more time, let's raise the question. What will it take for you to obey the gospel today? What would it take? If you're not a Christian and you haven't obeyed the gospel, what would it take for you to obey the gospel today? If you've been thinking about responding and you say, I'm, I'm going to do it some, sometime, I'm going to do that, and I know what I need to do, and, and I'm planning on doing it, what would it take to do that today? Do you understand that if you don't obey and you die in that condition, you'll lose your soul? Jesus said, if you believe not that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. Verse 24, John 8. Back up three verses. If you die in your sins, where I go, you can't come. In other words, if you don't obey the gospel, you're going to die a sinner. And if you die a sinner, you can't go to heaven. That's pretty simple. All right, let's add another principle to that. Salvation is available today. Today is the day of salvation. That passage is not emphasizing you need to obey today versus waiting till tomorrow. It's emphasizing it's available now. It hasn't always been available. Prophets desired to see this. They, they didn't live to see the kingdom. John never was in the kingdom. But you can be. It's available to you now. Add another principle. Christ could return at any time. He'll come as a thief in the night. We don't know the day nor the hour in which he'll return. So could he come today? Sure he could. Could it be a hundred years from now? Could it be a thousand? Sure he could. I don't know when he's going to come back. Let's add another principle to that. You don't know the day of your death. Genesis 27 and verse 2. Since you don't know the day of your death, could it be today? Yeah, it could be. Could you live another 50 years? Sure you could. Could you die next week? Sure you could. You don't know when. Now, let me ask you this. If you, if you died in a lost condition, you won't go to heaven, and salvation is available, and you don't know when Christ is coming back, and you don't know the day of your death, if you're not persuaded by that, what would it take? What would it take? You say, well, I think it, no, 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 that ain't going to work. Whatever you say, that ain't going to work. Because if you're not persuaded by this, you wouldn't be persuaded if you saw a miracle this morning. So how do you know? Luke 16 tells me that. You wouldn't be persuaded. There may be an erring child of God who needs to make correction. You've been thinking about doing that. You've been mulling it over. I, I think I need to make correction and get back on the right track. Same principle, if you die in your sins, you can't go to heaven. Salvation is available to you today. Christ could return at any time. If you're not persuaded by that, what would it take? What would it take? What a question. Matthew 27, 42. They said, we believe if he comes down from the cross, we'd, we'll do that. No, you wouldn't. So what would it take? And all the evidence was given. What would it take to believe in the creation account? What would it take to believe in verbal inspiration? What would it take to believe it makes a difference? What you believe, what would it take to see the importance of assembling and studying your Bible? What would it take to believe there's dangers in the world? To accept I'm not going to enable a sinner. Or the importance of the home, and especially that you need to obey the gospel even this very morning.
Would you come this morning believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?